Hey everyone, welcome to the Wallet Podcast. I'm James Marshall and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Firstly, quick shout out to Todd's Racing. The champion harness trainer Regan Todd is flying at the moment. So make sure you go give them a follow on their Facebook or their Twitter. That would be very much appreciated. And while we are there... If you enjoy this podcast, make sure that you are following the Waterlad Instagram account or the Facebook page or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Or if you are the ultimate lad, sign up to the Lads Club for discounts and some exclusive pranks coming soon. To sign up, head over to waterlad.com, scroll down the bottom, it'll say become a lad, type in your email and then that's it. It's all you have to do and you're in the Lads Club forever. Welcome. Go do that. Anyway, I've got a great lad for you today, so let's roll the intro. What a lad, what a lad, what a lad, what an absolute lad. What a lad, what a lad, what a lad, what an absolute lad. What a lad, right team? Now I'm really looking forward to this one as I have a recent Olympic medalist on the show who's not only coached the New Zealand Sevens team to all sorts of success over the last few years, he's actually done it all from carving up on the Sevens circuit himself for Scotland to successfully coaching his sides such as Taranaki, the Hurricanes and London Irish. And of course, you all know it, he is an absolute lad. He's one of the greatest Scottish Kiwis of all time. It is the great Clark Laidlaw. Welcome, Clarky. <laughs> Hell of a build-up. I'm not sure about the carving up part on the seven series, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> You're on there for a long time, though, eh? Longer than I thought. Yeah, off and on. So I played uh, 2000 originally, and then I went to 15s for a couple of years and um, didn't last too long there. Got kicked out of my contract and then went back to sevens 2004, I think. Played, yeah, played 18 tournaments um, at the back end there. So, yeah, off and on. Mate, you must have been a you must have been a gun. <laughs> eighteen tournaments. Yeah, eighteen. <laughs> Sixteen more than me. Yeah, well that's right. I, I think the heat got you in Dubai, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. I didn't get on enough. <laughs> I remember you getting sunburn on your forehead because you weren't allowed to wear a cut. <laughs> oh, that rule used to break me. <laughs> oh, Titch wouldn't let me wear my cap. I used to get the lasagna, the burnt and the little bits where my hat used to yeah. protect me and oh training. Training in the heat, what was it, 30-odd degrees, yeah. sun beaming down, not allowed to wear my hat, <laughs> sweat dripping in the eyes, <laughs> just one of those unnecessary rules. <laughs> Hopefully you've changed that, I see you're wearing a hat now. Yeah, that's because I'm, um, I'm going bald and grey, so that's why I've got a hat on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the grey part, so always wear the hat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, mate, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, I know you're a busy man in isolation, biking marathons every single day. Talk to me about that. What's what's the reason behind that one? Um, oh, well, over the last year, had a bit of a tough year. Uh, my mum passed away just over a year ago, um, and my dad was diagnosed with with Alzheimer's. So. My little brother Chris back home, he he decided to take on a challenge, twelve and twelve, which is he's going to run twelve marathons in twelve months. And obviously, you know, I can't be there to either support him. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd be there to run one, even if I was in Scotland. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I just thought I would do my do my bit, try and have a, a little bit of awareness for his, give a little page. So it's twelve and twelve, Chris Laidlaw. Um, give a little, so he's giving back to the three charities that really helped us out. So the, the injured players. 
um, which is a Scottish charity um, for, for injured rugby players, um, Alzheimer's Scotland, um, who supported my old man, and then the Marie Curie, which is the nurses that, that came in and helped my mum um, stay at home. She had, a, I guess, a short battle with cancer. So, so yeah, it's something that's pretty close to, to obviously the family's hearts. So if I can, you know, raise a little bit of awareness by sitting on my little horse here each day, then, you know, hopefully hopefully I can help him and his... His, uh, he's done seven, so he's he's got a few to go. He done his first one back home in the week, uh, a couple of weekends ago. So, so yeah, see if I can do my part for that. Oh, mate, you're a good man. So, how many how many bikes are you in already? <laughs> one. <laughs> <laughs> how was it? <laughs> yeah, it was all good. Uh, the, the bigger the bigger laugh was some of the boys decided to they reckon they were going to join in. So we've all got bikes in the rooms. I think I'm the only one with a walk bike because I, I got in touch because um, I knew I was going to do it. So I think the biggest laugh was Tim Mickelson tried to ride it, but he couldn't get the seat high enough. Um, Aquila Rocalasso finished by sitting on the ground, pedaling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think some of the boys might be one one and done. I see Joe Weber um, posted one and said, you'll see me in three days. He's off back to bed. So... <laughs> So yeah, it was pretty cool yesterday. A few of the boys jumped jumped on board and um, and done a few a few of the management are getting involved. Um, but I think, I think the range of bikes might um, stop a few doing the twelve. Yeah. So what's your plan of attack today? When are you going to attack it? Is there a perfect time for you? No, I went at two o'clock yesterday. It seemed like quite a good time. So I had a, a lazy morning. Uh, got a couple of calls this morning, so I'll probably go go after lunchtime again seems like um, I think the afternoons will drag a little bit here in MIQ so the mornings seem to go reasonably quickly usually because <laughs> this is an early start for us at uh, 9.30 yeah. but so yeah I'll jump on after lunchtime again and, and knock one out oh mate you're a good man and I strongly recommend anyone who can who's listening who can donate to go check out that and donate if you can I'll, I'll chuck the link at the bottom of the um, podcast when I release it so uh, make sure you go give that a click and Donate what you can for a good cause and a couple of good people. Your brother, he is a legend. Running 12 marathons in 12, 12 <laughs> months, that's a tough gig. Yeah. But anyway, let's talk about the Olympics because obviously, mate, it was awesome to see you guys on the biggest stage at the Olympics and amazing achievement to get your silver medal, but you would be feeling a little bit disappointed not to go one better, I'd imagine. Yeah, I think so, mate. It's... Um... It's quite a mixed emotions, isn't it? It's usually when you play a game of rugby or a tournament, you sort of win or you lose. Yeah. Um, and you feel like you can you can sort of accept that. Um, winning a silver at an Olympics, you know, I think a reflection is, is a pretty amazing achievement for, for the players and the team. Um, but I guess with competitiveness, and we certainly went there with, with the ambition to win a gold. You know, I think it's mixed emotions. Um, I'm sure, you know, as we get through the next two weeks, um, I guess the, the winning and losing of the tournament will probably fade. You know, and I think we all know that in rugby, you, at the time, it's the most important thing in the world, isn't it? To to try and win. And man, we put we put so much effort over the last three or four years to, to try and put a team in there that could win. And, yeah. Um, but I think the overriding thing for me, mate, is going to be sort of real satisfaction and pride around the group of men we've developed on and off the field. We're bloody lucky that we've got a great group. You know, we we spent sort of three hours after the tournament sitting in the changing room, just yarning to each other and, and talking about, you know, the last few years and sharing some memories and and thanking each other. And I think that'll be the thing 
as you know, me in a changing room, it's probably the thing nobody can ever get. You know, you can't buy that feeling you get as a tight group. Um, and again, Sevens is even tighter, isn't it? It's a small group and it was only 13 players and a few management. So so that two or three hours after the tournament, I think it's probably once the, you know, the, the initial disappointment of not being able to get a gold, that's the thing that'll stay with me. But um, yeah, mixed emotions is probably the easy way of describing it. So super proud of how we prepared and played. But as you know, against Fiji, a couple of those little opportunities that got away from us, um, you know, I thought we didn't react to one of their kickoffs quick enough. Um, you know, we lost the ball, a little fly hack through that they got a little bit lucky with. And then at 19-12, I felt like we'd wrestled the game back. You know, the momentum was, was probably with us. We were hanging in there. And I think if we'd scored at 19-12, it felt like we could come over the top. Um, but again, we, we missed an opportunity up that left-hand side. And then... You know they were good enough to go down and and eventually score off a big ball in play, which you know took the game away from us. So it was an unbelievable experience. So I'm sure you want to talk about that, but man, the Olympics was was unreal. Yeah, well, the thing about sevens that you mentioned there is one on such small margins, eh? Like it's the smallest thing can turn a game, and sometimes a kick can win it. But it's the smallest uh, margins that win or lose your game. So how how hard is that to prepare for and plan for? I think that's the beauty of Simmons, like why it, why it helps develop players, you know, develops fitness staff and coaches and players because you, you have to, you've got no room for error, you know, you miss one clean, you drop a ball, you miss one tackle, miss one kickoff, that can be the game, you know, in 15s, very rarely is it is it won and lost on just a tiny little moment. Um, so it really puts, you know, your skills, your decision making under real pressure, Um and prepare for it, you know, you know that it's the ultimate game of consequence. When you go in there, you know, especially against the best teams, that it doesn't take much. You know, if you look at the Australian game, we were, you know, 12-0 down out of nowhere. And as you say, Andrew Newstub kicked a conversion from the sideline to, to get us back in the game. And, you know, then we scored another try. We win 14-12. So it's, you know, as much as we lost the game on, on fine margins, we, we certainly won a couple on similar fine margins. So it's, I think that's what makes it so exciting, especially in the men's game. There's there's nothing between the teams. You know, you look at South Africa missing a quarter final, who Argentina were down to six men with, I think it was 12 minutes to go. So it was a crazy, you know, crazy tournament that, that we all know any of the teams can beat anybody. So I think that's why it looks like it's been going pretty well on social media and TV and stuff. And how tough was the um, rescheduling of the tournament for you guys? Obviously, it got pushed back. Um, you'd planned for a long time to have the tournament at a certain date and then it all got pushed back. How hard was that to adapt to? Oh, yeah, it was difficult. It was, um, there was a number of fronts. You know, the programme got shut down for, for three months. All the staff, apart from, I think there was four of us across the two teams, we went down to three days a week. The rest of the staff didn't have a job for three months. So that was, that was bloody difficult. Um, you know, certain players... We're here and then went to 15s and, you know, we, we got most of them back, but not all of them back. You know, so it changed the makeup of our squad. I think there was a couple of things we put into our game that we thought was ready to peak last year. And then maybe teams got a read on, you know, it's our defensive system or uh, some areas of the game that, you know, all of a sudden had another year and a bit for people to have a look at rather than just four or five months. Um, but all in all, mate, you know, it was, again, it was... 
and amazing, um, amazingly proud of how the group responded to all that. By the time we all got back together just after Christmas, because we weren't really back together until until January, you know, all staff, all players, um, and it kind of felt it gave us an actual boost because everybody missed missed being together so much. So the players and staff, I think, had a real boost. I think that some of the players that went to 15s realised why they love sevens so much. Yeah, and they maybe realised how well you know we do stuff and how well looked after they are from a training perspective and. Um, so that that was actually a real positive that, that some guys had went away and you look at somebody like an Amanaki Nicole who went to Southland probably realised you know he was he was easily good enough to be a an NPC player came back with a lot of confidence um, in his own game and he was somebody that we thought you know got a real benefit from going to 15s then coming back and realising you know that he actually done some stuff really well and um, his game was probably further ahead than he realised so. So I think in some ways it was really, you know, it was really tough and you wouldn't want to go through that too often. But it, in other ways, it gave guys like a Scott Curry, you know, he was another one who had never played NPC, ended up becoming the, the true hybrid player, didn't he? Playing six, <laughs> eight and 12. Um, so so guys like that, you know, got, got to do stuff that maybe, you know, maybe in a normal Olympic cycle they wouldn't have got to do. So mm. there's always positives, isn't there? You know, if you look at, if you look for opportunities, there was there was some certainly good positives there too. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned that the boys were well looked after in terms of um, training and stuff. You've obviously changed the program up, up there because no one has ever talked <laughs> <laughs> highly of the sevens training schedule. It's usually a real tough slog. So what's changed? It's still a tough slog. Um, <laughs> oh, I think, oh, I guess we, we try and use a fair bit of sports science to prepare the players. Um so you know you can't you can't just train hard all day every day, can you? So so there's a real specific nature to to how we try and prepare based off you know based off the, what the game looks like. Um, we've genuinely tried to create an environment where players love to be part of it, um, have a lot of fun, and and build really good connections on and off the field. Um, it's something you know we thought was important coming out of the back of the last Olympics um, with centralising the team. You know, we're not we're not like every national team where you come together for short periods. I guess we're more we're almost more like a super rugby team and a NPC side because we're together the whole year. So it's really important we get that balance right, mate, around working hard, uh, working smart, um, having fun. And I think in the main, you know, we've done a really good job at that. But it is hard. You know, I sometimes think or wonder if that's why a few 15s players, um, you know, steer clear of sevens because. People talk how hard it is, and it is. You know, it's a brutal game, isn't it? But it's a great game for for any young player or player that wants to develop, um, you know, skill development under pressure, build some resilience that that you all need to to succeed at the top level. Hundred percent, couldn't agree more with that. I'd say it's massive development tool for rugby, and I feel like it's sort of underused at the moment. I reckon. No, and that's, you know, it's another challenge we've got now is, you know, what, what the sevens in the country look like. Uh, we've obviously got the Red Bull tournament that was a huge success. Yeah. But it's it's definitely a challenge. You know, the Condors in the World Schools is an amazing event for your 17, 18-year-olds. But we certainly, you know, in my opinion, we still need some sort of provincial involvement in sevens. Mm. Man, after being in Olympic Games, I can't understand why everybody involved in rugby doesn't want to play sevens. It's... It's a hell of an experience to to go and rub shoulders with the best athletes in the world and the biggest stage, um, you know, males and females. Mm. You look at what girls have done and 
you know the sort of profile they can bring to inspire the next generation of rugby players is huge. Were you surprised not to get more Super Rugby players make themselves available for the tournament? The guys like Riasi and stuff who sort of turned it down. I'm not sure if I'm surprised. Um, I'm disappointed, or I think after being the Olympics, I'm a little bit confused why players wouldn't want to go. You're at, you're at dinner with Djokovic, you know, you're walking around watching the NBA. French basketballers, the Spanish guys, or you know, you've got the best athletes that you're watching on TV now. Um, you've got some of the New Zealand's best sports stars, you know, from rowing to track cycling, you know, Lisa Carrington and so on. It's, mm. I think, we need to find a way of, of opening up people's idea to what the Olympics is. It's the biggest sporting event in the world. It's not, you know, it's not a 15s game that only five, six countries might watch. Mm. Um, 10 if you're lucky it's it's every country every corner of the world every sport you can think of so hopefully over the next few while we can try and get around and you know whether it's part of our um, player development or education around our younger players around what it feels like and um, hopefully some of our younger players can can try and share their stories around what what the olympics felt like to try and inspire that next generation you know i think it's easy in the women's game because our girls are are the pinnacle of the sport under the Simmons girls have been, you know, I guess like the All Blacks. So for us, we need to, yeah, try and open up people's idea to what what playing at the Olympics could look like. Mm. And you mentioned the Olympic Village there. That what? So nothing really changed with the COVID lockdown. It was still mingling with some of the biggest names in the game and being able to go and watch other games, etc. Nah, we weren't able to go and watch, um, which was hugely disappointing. I think it would have been an unbelievable Olympics in, in Tokyo. It looked so well set up. Um, the, the village, we had to wear masks and basically went to the, the food hall, got your, you know, wash your hands, put your gloves on, yeah. got your food, sat as far away from uh, other people as possible, and then went back to your, uh, your apartment. But it's just the, it's the atmosphere. It's, it's something you can't really you know, put your finger on. It's been part of a bigger New Zealand team. Um, not just rugby, where you know I think in rugby we can become, um, you know, people talk about being in a bubble um, mm-hmm. with COVID, but I think in 15s you're genuinely in a bubble. You go to a hotel, you don't see your opposition, you play them on a Saturday, then you, then you go home again. Whereas being part of the Olympic team, welcoming in, you know, our boys did an amazing job getting part of um, the NZOC team, welcome other sports in, um, mingling with where the TV was and getting coffees together. Um, watching people come back with medals. It's an amazing atmosphere and something, you know, they're the things that you probably remember more is, um, you know, watching those roars come back with all their medals was, and watching our, you know, our men almost being of, you know, of another sport. And um, it's pretty cool. Um, and it's, it's, as I say, not, not just being in rugby and, and being involved in a bigger, wider team is... It's a great experience. Yeah, and, and who was the biggest celebrity to come get a photo with you? <laughs> I think my mask must have hit me. Um, <laughs> so nobody, uh, <laughs> nobody went out of their way to get a selfie. So we were seriously tempted when we seen Djokovic to go and ask him for a for a selfie. Um, he had a big long line of uh, athletes waiting to get to catch up with him, so we left him to it. Oh, true. Was he was he probably the biggest name you bumped into? Yeah, the, the or the couple of basketballers that played for France. I can't remember his name. I didn't know him, but all the boys knew <laughs> knew him. He was the guy that got the NBA shut down for COVID when he touched all the mics, if you remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. um, and he had he had COVID the next day. 
So by all accounts, he gets 30, 30 million US a year. So I guess he's a pretty big star in the NBA. But um, similar to you, <laughs> yeah, it's real similar. Um, I just love seeing the New Zealand athletes. Um, I love seeing the way they went about their work, and yeah, it was pretty cool to, as I say, to watch those roars come back with so many medals. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, mate, it's bloody good rundown on the Olympics. That's good stuff, but. We need to get through a little bit of your story as well. Um, great Scotsman. Who, you must you must just pinch yourself sometimes realising where you are now, coaching the New Zealand seven side, coming from Scotland. Pretty weird Scottish bloke just who's come over to New Zealand and um, now coaching the pinnacle of New Zealand sport, which is uh, the all-black seven side. So it must be pretty surreal, eh? Yeah, and I think it's probably it's felt more surreal over the last couple of weeks at the Olympics, for sure. Yeah. So, But yeah, you're right, it's... You know, somebody had said to me 10 years ago or 12 years ago when I first came to Taranaki, you know, you'd be head coach of the All Black Sevens, you'd, you'd probably have laughed at them. But I think being at the right place at the right time, you know, at Taranaki, we were we were really lucky to be involved in a, in a province that had loads of good people and gave people opportunities. You know, again, you were involved with the Sevens the last time I was helping out as an assistant, you know, and that, that was after two or three years of being in the country, so... So certainly it felt like I was in the right place at the right time a lot of the time and got really good opportunities. Um, taking this role on from, you know, from a 15s team in London, I guess, is a little bit strange. And But, you know, I wouldn't have changed it for the world now. It's um, it's a great team to be part of and um, the last four years have been, been a hell of a ride. So let's go back to your um, Scottish days. Uh, growing up, I know your old man was a Scottish legend, Um I think he won the Grand Slam. Your cousin is a Scottish legend as well. Greg Laidlaw, top point scorer of all time. You're also now a legend as well. So, <laughs> mate, rugby's massive in your family. Was was it always a big part of your family growing up? Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know how many people know the borders of Scotland, the south. It's uh, traditionally the rugby area of Scotland, a uh, real rural, uh, small town, um, similar to Taranaki, I guess, made up a lot of little towns. Um Jedburgh is the town we, we grew up in. It's only, I think, four, four and a half thousand people. So, yeah, it was, um, mm. I don't think there was any any other option, really. I played golf in the summer and rugby in the winter. That was it. And, um, yeah, scuttled around the rugby club chasing after your old man and uh, used to go down to the trainings and stuff on a Tuesday, Thursday night and run around thinking you were, um, you know, you were playing for Scotland. So it was, it was always, always in our blood and, as I say, it was never felt you were forced and made to play rugby just because your old man did. And certainly had a couple of periods in your life where you kicked back a wee bit around, uh, you know, probably your old man playing playing international sport. Took up skateboarding for a year, but I was uh, wasn't very good at that, so uh, <laughs> had to go back to playing rugby. So, so that's um, yeah, it's a real traditional rugby area, mate. And um, you know, bloody lucky to have the the childhood that you had. Um, you know, playing sport and, as I say, being able to run around the rugby club whenever you chose, um, Saturdays or Tuesdays and Thursdays. And, yeah, it was cool. And did you take rugby seriously or when did you start taking rugby seriously and think that it could become something? Yeah, well, rugby, you know, even when I first played senior rugby when I was 18, it wasn't professional. I think it went professional maybe this, the year after that, um, in 95, 96. So when you grew up, um, you took it serious because you wanted to play well and, but like looking back now, man, we had no idea around where the game would go and um, that it could become a career. And you know, I guess I was one of those players in that transitional period where you became um, 
you became a professional because you got paid, but not necessarily because you were an actual professional. Um, <laughs> so, you know, probably enjoyed ourselves maybe too much off the field. Um, looking back now, certainly in my 15s, uh, we had some good fun off the field, but we were rubbish on it. Um, and ironically, I was probably more professional when I played sevens and didn't really get paid very much money. I ended up working part-time and played sevens part-time. So, okay. so yeah, the early part of my career was, you know, a real transition both for rugby, but also for me to think, all right, well, rugby is now becoming, you know, a genuine option around the career. And I got into rugby development through through playing sevens that allowed me to do rugby development for my, my club side, Jed Forrest. And, yeah, I guess, you know, when you finish playing rugby, I was a bit like, well, what, what do you do now? So I was lucky enough to get a job with, with a council, East Lothian Council, doing rugby development full time, and it sort of opened up my eyes to to actually being organised as a rugby development officer and um, got a sports team at a council. I think there were seven or eight different sports. I done that for just over a year before I moved to New Zealand, and I loved I loved that experience. That sort of opened up my eyes to, I guess, properly doing a job rather than just filling it in to to allow you to play rugby. So so yeah, I was that big transitional period really for rugby mate where. You know, eventually started realising it could become a career. So, what stopped you from playing rugby? What what ended the career in the end? When I moved to New Zealand, yeah, it just looked way too hard. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I moved, um, I was yeah, I was on the wind down. Um, Two thousand and eight, I was playing club rugby for Jed, and, and was actually coaching at the same time. And Car uh, and I moved moved to Taranaki in two thousand eight with with our first uh, little girl Olivia. So she was only one. Um, we'd moved to the other side of the world. You know, I thought continuing to play and, and going out and joining that club was probably not ideal when you'd moved your family to the other side of the world. Social rugby in Taranaki might have led to a few late nights on a Saturday, wouldn't it? So, so it's probably a wise idea looking back. Um, the only time I played rugby in New Zealand was for two Copa Senior Thirds. Oh, true. So Khan and the, uh, Olivia went home for six or eight weeks. So that's when I actually joined two couple of senior thirds and played uh, played a few games and my claim to fame is we beat we beat uh, we beat the mighty coastal in the final. Smiley Barrett and Robo were both playing and Robo was the CEO at the time. So I took my medal in on the Monday morning to a whips meeting on the Monday morning just uh, just to give Robo some shit uh, in the Monday morning meeting. So that was quite quite good fun. So what were you a halfback? <laughs> yeah, I was a halfback and then I, I became a first five. And looking back, that was probably you know I was I was a decent a decent halfback as a as a youth player. Yeah. And when I moved to first five, uh, really through my club round, to, I think I was about twenty. Um, I was an okay first five, but I was a better halfback. I should have I should have continued to play halfback. Um, as you know, Jimmy, I've got a I was a good communicator because <laughs> uh, I've got a big mouth and. I was reasonably aggressive, so I was a good defender. Yeah. Um, but as a first five, I was a shit goal kicker, terrible <laughs> line kicker. So I had to develop those areas of the game, and um, yeah, probably never good enough to then, you know, continue in the professional game. True. No regrets though. No regrets on your rugby career. Nah. Yeah, you can go back and have a wee word with yourself at nineteen twenty. You probably say, um, don't enjoy yourself on the pitch as much, but. Uh, man, I've got some good stories. <laughs> Go on, give us give us one of them. <laughs> well, it was just um, yeah, you didn't know any different, did you? You just you know, I remember the Borders team. We were fully professional, and we arranged to stay on in Dublin after we played Leinster on a Friday night because it was Scotland Ireland 
on the on the Saturday and man, what a couple of days we had and then then you go back to work on a Monday and you're meant to be a professional rugby player again. Having had two days two days on the Guinness. <laughs> Tough times. You and Davy Gray would have got up to all sorts when you were um, travelling together too. I'd imagine. Yeah, he's worse than me. He's uh, he's a hell of a lad. It's actually been um, it's been quite cool. I don't know if you know, but Davy <laughs> Davy's been involved with us with the Sevens the last couple of months. Um, we finished training at Blair Mills, took off to Japan. Oh, true. So we got Davy involved because he was only doing three days a week with the Hurricanes. So it was um, that was that was pretty surreal. Two sort of local boys. We've known each other since we were. Oh, 15, 16, we played rugby against each other and I'm with each other. And so for the two of us to be involved over the last couple of months has been pretty cool, um, yeah, getting him involved with the team. Another thing I want to talk to you about is your time at the Hurricanes. You obviously went down there and became an assistant coach. So any anything that stands out around your time down there? Oh, I genuinely love my time at the Hurricanes. Um, they were the team I used to get up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning to watch on Sky Sports whenever Super Rugby was on back home and... Um, I remember uh, Mark Hammett phoning me up and asking me if I was keen to to go down in a skills role initially. Him and Alama um, asked me if I would go down and help out. and I think that probably felt more surreal than, than any of the jobs I got. I was, man, I was so nervous going to the Hurricanes and uh, thinking about coaching All Blacks and, you know, some of the best players in the world yeah. um, and yourself. And yourself. Yeah, intimidating. Um, <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I, you know, the, the main thing would be, man, it was a great place to work and the players' appetite at the Hurricanes when I was there was, was always to be better um, and work their ass off to, to be really good. You know, I guess that, that year we lost the final, 2015, would would be the easiest memory around um, good and bad. And, you know, we played some amazing rugby that year and then came up short in that, that final against the Highlanders who, you know, who done a job on us, I thought, that day. And, but it's, it's similar to all the memories, really, isn't it, with rugby? It's, it's the people you meet and... Um, the experience you have, you know, I wouldn't have changed a thing at the Hurricanes. It was, um, you know, getting to work with different coaches, getting to work with Ham and Alama, but then Boydie coming in and um, Plums, you know, two two really experienced coaches that that ran the team in different ways um, allowed me to see to see that as well as, as working with Ham and Alama the initial years and uh, the mighty Watty and Chrono um, over over both both sets of coaches. So. It was good times, wasn't it? You know, we had um, some amazing leaders or players that, that wanted to grow the game. Um, Body, yourself, Tim Bateman. You know, it's, it's three players that really, really ran the team. It was um, it was quite an easy team to work for in some regards. Um, the skill level and ability um, didn't put too many handbrakes on how you wanted to play the game. How old were you when you went into that environment? Um, Two thousand thirteen. What's that? So yeah, thirty. 34. Oh, true. So yeah, reasonably young, I guess. Um, certainly working with guys like Conrad and, and Frank, saying that you know who you felt were almost the same age as you at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, felt a little bit intimidating if I'm being honest at the start. Yeah. Um, but I remember guys like Snakey. Um, you know, I had a look at his game one day around some of his tackle stuff, and I showed him a couple of things, and he was he was a bit like. Can you have a look at this every week? And I was like, Yeah, I can have a look at it. And um, he's like, Oh, it's good for somebody just to have a look at, you know, the technical part. I think once the players get a little bit older and become captains and, and leaders, a lot of the tension in their game becomes around, um, you know, either the tactical or, or the leadership side of the the team. Yeah. 
So I think when I initially went in just doing skills and just looking at, you know, how how people caught the ball or what the pass was like or how that looked, you know, in, in the attack shape or defensive structure, um, I think players really appreciated that. So I got, you know, I got really good relationships with some of the senior players, which allowed me to to probably relax a little bit and, and realise, you know, I didn't need to prove myself. And um, I think once I'd done that, it allowed me to coach, you know, just coach how I, how I seen fit and um, as I say I really enjoyed those relationships with some of those senior players certainly in the initial stages and you talked about the 2015 final I know hindsight's an easy thing for coaching but would you have done anything differently um, going into that final it's, that final's come up a lot throughout this podcast through the relationships that I've I've <laughs> made but there's been lots of different takes on it What what's your take? Oh yeah, well, we'd have done something different. I'd like to think so. Um, <laughs> certainly want a different result. Um, I think the the biggest thing I've, I've I've took from sevens that I think we need to take into fifteens is adaption. So in in sevens we we play six different teams um, over a weekend. Um, you know the first three you're going to get, and you don't really know. Say, say the Olympics, you had no idea who you're going to get because it was the if you won your group, it was going to be eighth. Mm. So you actually had no idea who you're going to play. So how we've prepared the team is really trying just to adapt to different scenarios rather than worrying about a certain opposition. You know, and if you look, if you look at that game again, um, the, the Highlanders' ability to push up high and outside and turn us back in and, and stop us getting to width um, put us under a lot of pressure in that game. Mm. Now, did we ever train adapting to that picture? Um, you'll be able to remember better than me, but I think no would be the short answer. Yeah, we didn't expect it. Nah. So I think, you know, where my coaching and, and how I would want to prepare a team now is to expect everything and, and be ready for different solutions. Um, mm. You know, the, the coming around the, the mall where where they, they came around and sacked the mall, and we never really touched the ball again that last 10, sort of 15 minutes, um, was another good example of something we hadn't expected. So I think, you know, that one game, mate, back then, was I experienced enough to, to talk at this? Nah. Um, you know, I think Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown are obviously bloody good coaches and, you know, fair play to them. They they prepared their team really well. Um, you know, and even even that Olympic final, you start thinking, man, we didn't adjust to one of their kickoffs to stack the kickoff. And we adjusted the second time but not the first time and they scored off, this, off the second one. So there's like another example where we still haven't quite, you know, got this team adapting quick enough. Because um, I think that's where the games went, you know, being prepared for the unexpected, but also being able to do the same to opposition. Yeah. So, you know, would I have changed it? You know, I'd, I think I think maybe now we could change it if you could go back. But at the time, you know, we only lost two games the whole season, didn't we? Um, mm. We couldn't really have asked for much more. And that's rugby, mate. That's, you know, some teams on the day are, are better than others. And, you know, both, both the Hurricanes and the Sevens, we've been, you know, bloody good at times. And, and that year was the same. Uh, totally lose two games. Yeah, and then you moved over to London Irish. So, what brought that move about for you? Oh, well, I think I think initially we were thinking about moving home. Um, Karen and I, we now had two daughters, um, and then our third was actually in the way as we made that decision. So, you know, we we'd been away for a long time. We initially came to New Zealand for a year. That's how I sold it to Karen that we would um, we'd come for a year and. <laughs> We'd go home. So, so really, we were, you know, sort of 18 months up to maybe making that decision. And then I actually coached Samoa 
um, national team with Tom Coventry and Alama Ramia in the Northern Tour in the in the November previous. Um, and Tom and I, you know, were, were spoken to by London Irish. So I really enjoyed working with Tom. You know, I liked his approach to the game and thought, you know, if I was going to go home um, or to the UK and and work with different people, I thought going with somebody I already knew, um, somebody I thought, you know, would, would run a good team um, and want to play the game, I guess, in a sort of New Zealand style. It was a good opportunity. So that was, it kind of just all fell into place over a short mm. period of time, just before the Christmas. Um, as I say, we were pregnant with Emmy, Tom, then had the opportunity to be the head coach at London Irish. So, you know, it was, it was a decision we thought at the time we'd, we'd see us, you know, eventually end up back in Scotland, I guess. So then what was London Irish like? But getting over there, trying to coach, trying to change, turn this team around, turn them into a New Zealand style playing group, I guess. Yeah, it went badly, didn't it? Ah, um, <laughs> uh, you talk about hindsight, Jimmy. It's um, you know that's that's probably the period of my coaching I'm most disappointed about. You know, looking back in hindsight, there was things we done poorly. You know, expecting players to be able to change as quick or adapt to how we wanted to play the game. You know, in hindsight, was definitely a mistake. Um, not really understanding maybe the the mindset more than the skill set of the players, because um, I, I genuinely don't think it's a skill set issue. I think a lot of the time it's a mindset um, around how you can play the game and, and certainly how you can attack um, and find space. So there was heaps of stuff that first year. Um, you know, ultimately we we got relegated from the Premiership. Um, that was a hugely tough experience watching, um, you know, a club go through that. You know, I took no satisfaction whatsoever around being involved. Um, you know, I seen people lose their jobs that had worked for the club for for years. Um, you know, I seen private owners that that put in, you know, five million pound of their own money, watch a team not not perform and prepare as well as what everybody wanted. So it was, you know, it was a it was a tough year. Uh, we'd had a new baby. Uh, we're living in London. Mm. Some days it was taking you two hours to get home from training. Um, <laughs> and then you arrived and turned it all around. So it was... Uh, <laughs> it was um, but yeah, that, that first year, mate, was, was bloody tough and, and definitely some real good lessons around, around change, around dealing with people, around building relationships. Um that's, that's put me in a way better place in my coaching. And then the second year, you know, I, I genuinely really enjoyed the second year. Um, being in the championship, yeah, the rugby was potentially not quite as good as as the premiership or super rugby, but actual coaching and the way the players applied themselves the second year, um, you know, having you on board, not, not because I'm on your podcast, but having, you know, somebody that a coach can rely on um, to help run the game and build the game, you know, it's, it's a huge thing and certainly it was appreciative um, from my end having you involved and and um, the coaches we worked with, you know, the young English coaches with um, yeah. Dodge and Deck and Kendall, I thought brought a real enthusiasm and a real love for their club um, that rubbed off on the team um, and winning helps, you know, we, we understand that, like we won, mm. I think we won almost every game, then we lost the jersey away and... Um, jersey, yeah. You know, I think there was one other game we lost that whole year, but um, I, I genuinely enjoyed giving back to the club and, and getting them promoted. Um, I felt, you know, I felt after the first year it was probably the right thing for me to do was to, 
was to stay. I had a couple of really good opportunities. Um, looking back, um, you know, one was a big Irish team that, you know, maybe I should have took the job. It was a pretty cool job. But, you know, I felt it was the right thing to to stay and, and give back um, and try and get the team, you know, at least promoted back in the Premiership and help with the recruitment for, for the following year. And how did you find working with Brendan Venter? Awesome. <laughs> it was... Um, Man, I loved working with him. He was, I've never seen anybody challenge people as much. Um, he was, um, I don't know if anybody listening will know Brendan that well, but he's obviously a doctor. So some of my best um, chuckles behind the scenes was him and Brian O'Leary, the head of medical, going, you know, going at it around whether a player was going to be available for selection or what sort of treatment he was going to get. But Brian could give as good as he got. And there were some great days and then, Obviously, being a South African, me wanting to play with ball in hand and uh, find space and him wanting to kick it and maul it, was, um, we had some really good discussions. But what I always found with Brendan was, mate, if he, if you could argue your point and you had um, you know, a, a fair reason around why you thought something would work, he, he, would, he would argue, but he would, he would then either disagree and commit or I would have to disagree and commit. But he was... Um, I learned a lot around, you know, well, you see, I mean, how positive and optimistic and, um, you know, he always, he only looked for effort. He only wanted his players to, to work as hard as they could. Mm. And he always, you know, he put the pressure on the coaches to to create the game plan and, and, and work with the players to be better. So, you know, he's, but man, we had some, uh, some classics behind the scenes, that's for sure. He could definitely sell the dream, eh? He could have potentially one of the uh, worst set-piece plays in history, but he could sell it like it was going to be the greatest move ever. I remember the old catapult couple round the corner plays, and he just sold it like it was the best play ever made up, and um, the boys all bought into it, and they loved it, and I think we scored off it. <laughs> oh, we did. I think we scored um, at Elon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but that, that's, I guess that's that of coaching sometimes, isn't it? The yeah, being able to sell the dream and, and motivate your players. And you're right, you know, it's I guess no idea is a bad idea if everybody buys in and, and rips in. So, so you're right. He was um, he was a good salesman, but yeah, I used to wait on him coming in on those Monday mornings. He'd fly from South Africa overnight, and then he'd come in on a Monday and just go nuts till the game on a Saturday, then leave again. <laughs> and all the coaches would be like that. <laughs> right, we can relax again for the next three or four weeks till he comes back. I think the players were like that in the meetings too, especially Blair Cow. <laughs> <isn't he? laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, he wasn't shy and putting you on the spot, was he? Oh shit, no. Oh, it was good times. No, but definitely some good, <laughs> some good memories there at uh, London Irish, no doubt. And then you obviously got the opportunity to coach the New Zealand Sevens. So how did how did that one come about? Because I think you were supposed to stay for a, another year, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Um, yeah, I guess the the team didn't go so well in, in uh, the last Olympics. Um, you know, there was always talk that Titch would probably finish up after that. Um, having been involved with the team previous, you know, I used to keep in touch with Don Tricker and, and Tony Philp, who at the time were in charge of the recruitment and the next head coach. So they, they just got in touch, you know, asked what my thoughts were around potentially putting my name, my name forward to coach the team and yeah, I guess long story short, you know, I, th- I stuck my name in. I discussed it with Karen this time. I didn't surprise her with a job opportunity in New Zealand like the <laughs> the ten years previous or the eight years previous. But um, yeah, I guess like living back in the UK, we thought we'd get home a lot, see family a lot more. 
But as you know, when you're coaching in England and you've got 40-something games a year, I probably see my family less than I did when I was in New Zealand, you know, because nobody <laughs> would come down for six weeks at a time or we wouldn't yeah. go back there for six weeks at a time. And I think we've obviously been influenced as a family around, you know, lifestyle and how we live um, by New Zealand. So the opportunity to come and coach a team, be involved um, in quite an exciting time, I thought, for the team where, you know, we we're going to centralise. There was Com Games, World Cups, Olympics, um, mm. you know, on the field. Um, I thought it was quite an exciting opportunity. So, yeah, if you'd said to me again two years previous that we'd end up moving back to New Zealand, I would have said you were mad. But it kind of just fell in a place again, so at the right place at the right time. And, you know, London Irish um, allowed me to finish up a year early. And, yeah, we jumped on that flight again in the July after the season. And you obviously had an instant impact with the New Zealand Sevens team. You had some great success straight away, winning all sorts of competitions and Coach of the Year awards. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Um, I've never been more nervous ever, and that's including the last few weeks when we played our first game against Samoa, who Titch was now coaching in Dubai, and we were second game on. It was nine twenty. Oh yeah. And um, we had, you know, I had no idea if what we'd done in pre-season, you know, around our culture, around um, manner of game was so simple but we built a lot of stuff off the field around you know team culture and there was a couple of things from that that first game one we decided to sing before the game so before we go out to warm up we now sing um and it's become yeah second nature to us now but at the time we were in a changing room with uh, wales and as you know in dubai the, the changing rooms are not overly big and i looked at tim mickelson and yeah. scott curry and i was like are we singing and we were a bit like, you know, as you can probably tell us, uh, us battlers are probably not the best singers in the team. And um, I always remember Timmy saying he would do anything to try and win. So I was, all right, let's sing. So we actually went into the corridor and sang. Um, and I can remember the feeling change around feeling connected and nice and relaxed all of a sudden. But I went to that, that game, that tunnel, and... Um, I don't know what I looked like, but I felt like I was going to be sick in one mouth. I was that nervous. And then we tactically decided we'd kick long, leave the rucks. We thought Samoa would eventually, you know, turn the ball over or we'd get an opportunity. They kept the ball for two minutes and scored at the other end. <laughs> um, so I went on at half time and told the boys to get in the rucks. And they said, I thought you said stay at the rucks. I was like, forget what I said, just get in there and get the ball. <laughs> And uh, I think it was Sione. I think Sione scored a try. He broke through under the posts and, uh, and scored a try and won the game. Um, and then we got to the final. Couldn't believe it. We got, we got to the final and lost to South Africa. And then the following week in Cape Town, we actually beat South Africa in the semi-final in front of 50,000. And, and uh, we beat Argentina in the final. Um, and we thought we'd cracked it. And we never won another World Series tournament that year. Um, but... You know, we, we put all our eggs really in trying to win early um, and then the Com Games and World Cup was that year. So we, you know, we really made the plan to try, you know, genuinely peak at those tournaments. You know, it's um, it's a bit different than Simmons. We, you know, we are a peak in sport. We, we have three pinnacles over four years. It's, you know, when you wear a black jersey, everybody expects you to win all the time. But in the men's series, when it's so competitive, if you, if you try and win all the time, um, deliberately to win all the time it's it takes a lot it takes a lot to win every week um, and then to try and peak you know for a com games and world cup becomes even harder so 
So yeah, we made our plans that year to physically and sort of technically, tactically, emotionally peak at the Com Games. And um, you know, we made some decisions around sending a, a development team to Hong Kong the weekend before that, you know, some people criticised, but you know, you were only going to get to Australia on the sort of Tuesday before you played. Um, you know, and as it turned out, it, it, it worked really well. The boys were in amazing condition. You know, game was in a really good spot. Um, you know, and we went on to beat Fiji in the final and then the World Cup. We'd done the same. We sort of sacrificed, um, you know, that middle, that last part of the year to really, you know, try and recondition and, and rebuild some parts of our game to then try and play really well in San Francisco. And, you know, that was an amazing event at the uh, AT&T Stadium at the, the baseball Stadium, you know, we played Fiji in the semi-final in front of, you know, it felt like there was twenty thousand Fijians in the in the sure. crowd at the time, and you know they obviously had all the rock stars there around Rendrandra and um, Tia Sova and Nakarewa and all these boys, and that's one of the games that you'll never forget. You know how well we played in that semi, and then we had to dig deep against England in the final. So, so yeah, we were, you know, it was. I think some of it was potentially luck. I think some of it was the heart of what happened over the last couple of years was senior players were were hugely motivated to make change in the team and, and change in their performance, which allowed us to then push them. And, you know, again, I use Timmy a lot of the time, but I remember my first meeting with Timmy came with his little IPP sheet and at the top, he just had new era. How good can I be? Yeah. So for a coach seeing your captain and senior player talk like that and anybody that knows, you know, knows Timmy, his mindset to try and improve every day is as good as I've seen in any rugby player, you know, alongside Skaz and, and some of the senior players. Those two really drive wanting to be better. They're never satisfied where their game's at. So, so yeah, that was, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a cool first year. And that's 100% the reason why they've been in the team for so long, playing so well, still competing at the highest level. So, um, you can just see what a difference that makes to any any player, eh? Yeah, and I think, you know, if you look at the, the Olympics, I thought Skaz was the best player in the tournament alongside Andrew Newstub. Um I thought the way he drove the team and his his sort of fight to to win those games, the way he led us, um I thought he was outstanding. Um, you know, and Timmy played bloody well too and and both of them, you know, are thirty four, thirty three, are physically in the best shape of their career. You know, across the board, um, mm. you know, Timmy maybe doesn't quite run the same Bronco as he used to, but he's a lot stronger and he's, he's faster than he used to be. Um, you know, some of the GPS numbers and jump numbers were were all PBing for, for that Olympics. So that, you know, again, shows you the, the work they've done over the last few years to keep themselves in really good condition. And they're great professionals, um, you know, really, really good professionals, as a lot of the players in the team are. Um, you know they've they've sacrificed a lot over the last the last few years, and, and certainly the last six eight months. You know the boys have really you know knuckled down and, and become the best physical shape they've ever been in. And you talked about um, your successful first year coaching the squad and the accolades that came with it. You won the New Zealand Coach of the Year. You won all sorts of coaching um, awards. How, how did you feel receiving these sorts of awards? I think as a coach, you sometimes feel a bit embarrassed. Um, I'm not sure what the percentage of the difference a coach actually makes. There's a there's a couple of football studies that it's somewhere between five and ten percent sure. that you make that difference. So I think when you read that, it probably keeps your own ego in check that you're actually not making that much of a difference. Um, 
And yeah, it's nice for people to, you know, to say you're the coach of the year. But man, it's, um, you know, I think it's a myth if you think you're a coach that, that makes all the difference. So mm. I just, you know, I, I genuinely want players to get recognition, mate. I, I think I think the Simmons players in New Zealand don't get the recognition they deserve. Um, I genuinely think, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with, with world-class players, um, both here you know, I worked with a lot of internationalists in England, All Blacks and Sevens players, and you know, I can genuinely say these boys work as hard and, and as diligently um, and as passionately around their, their their rugby as any player I've worked with. So, I'd love to see guys like Scuzz and Tim Mickelson and you know, guys like Joe Weber. We've got some of this younger crew coming, and Andrew Newstab, Tony Anshu, Anashu, um, you know, guys like Dylan Collier. They're, man, they're good rugby players. And I think, you know, if if anybody getting recognition, it should be these boys around how dedicated they are to, to this sport and how hard they train. You know, I, I genuinely think 15s players, some 15s players would love to play sevens. But, you know, potentially some of their own ego and their own their own um, little worlds will stop them putting themselves in this window because because it's bloody difficult. You get exposed if, if you're not up to it. Doesn't matter how many times you've played for a Super Rugby team or the All Blacks, mm. if you've got a deficiency in your game, Simmons will find it real quick. Whether it's mental, physical, technical, it'll find it pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, you know, I've got you know genuinely no real interest um, in my own awards. I just want the players and the team to get the recognition of the work they do, and um, you know, hopefully they can get that. So what's next for what's next for Big Clark Laidlaw? You finished your Olympic campaign. What's what's the plans going forward? What bike? <laughs> the marathon. No, <laughs> um, no nah, real plans. Um, you know, we we'll get two weeks down here, and um, it's actually quite nice to to not have too much to think about. We're going to do some of the reviews over the next ten days um, and try and tidy some of that up. So when we come out. We'll get some leave, the players and staff. We'll, we'll take some time, um, you know, just to decompress and, and get away from the game. And um, I think some of the challenges we've got, obviously, going forward is is getting out of the country um, or getting back into the country, you know. So there is sevens tournaments happening um, October, November, December around the world. Uh, world Rugby is keen to, to try and make these World Series tournaments happen. But... You know, with quarantine still existing in New Zealand, um, you know, even for people like us that have been tested, you know, we've been tested every day for two weeks. We're fully vaccinated, um, but we still have to do the two weeks in MIQ. So unless the government change, you know, what the, what the protocols might look like around coming back into the country, we're going to struggle to to go out, you know, whether it's a financial um, issue, you know, because it obviously costs a fair bit of money to put a team through MIQ or even if it's just space in MIQ, you know, most of the beds are taken up, I think, between now and now and October, November. Um, if it still exists, the Cape Town tournament, it would mean we were in quarantine for for Christmas, you know. So I don't think any of us are that fired up to to have Christmas in MIQ. So it's pretty uncertain, I think, in, in you know, in New Zealand's sevens world. Um Mm. As I say, hopefully our borders can, you know, slightly relax around um, certain criteria. If you've been tested a lot, or you know, you're fully vaccinated plus testing, could it be a shorter period? You know, things like that. So, if that changes, you know, then then maybe we can get you know back overseas and, and get back in that World Series. If it doesn't, 
then I don't know. We got um, we got like a guest spot on your podcast that can come on and. Uh, <laughs> yep, definitely. Good coin too. Do like a monthly, do like a monthly catch up. Yeah, it sounds it. Um, so so yeah, short term, have a break, Jimmy, and um, you know, relax, relax, spend some time. We've been away for two months. Um, you know, it's another part that I'm I'm bloody proud of the team. I've never had a player or a member of management moan around being away. You know, it's going to be eight weeks. We've been away from our families mm. and, um, you know, we were in Townsville and uh, the way everybody just applied themselves and, and knew that's what it was going to take was, you know, was awesome. Um, but I think everybody's going to be pleased to get home to their families and friends um, in a couple of weeks' time. Is it sevens for you now? Is Are you set on sevens or would you be open to a transition back to the 15s game? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely open to transition back into 15s if, um, you know, I can get the right opportunity and, um, I do miss 15s. I miss, and then oh, I miss it in some ways. I, I'd love, I'd love 15s teams to apply themselves how the sevens boys apply themselves with with very little, um, you know, the, the way this team applies themselves to training and and, and cracks on and doesn't look for excuses, um, doesn't really want to influence how long they train or what they do in training and just embrace what's in front of them. You know, I'd, I'd love the challenge of seeing if you can get a 15s team to really embrace it like that. Because, um, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of different dynamics when you've got um, tight fives and forwards coaches and line outs and mm. malls. And, so I'd, I'd love the challenge to see if you could apply, you know, how a sevens week looks and how a sevens team operate if you, if you could yeah. put that into 15s. I miss the game of 15s, you know, the complexity of, you know, trying to get 40 boys in a squad to understand how you want to play the game and, you know, and I genuinely miss the week-to-week um, playing games. You know, it's mm. whether it's tournaments every you know six weeks or it's 15s games every week. I miss you know I've missed that over the last year. Um, if it's another year where you know we just get ready for a com games and World Cup later in the year, you know I think that'll that'll be tough um, because we're rugby players, rugby coaches. You want to play games. You want the challenge of preparing and and trying to win. So, so I missed that in 15. So I think, you know, over time, if, you know, the right opportunity can come up and the right place at the right time, then, you know, then cool. If not, you know, I've got another year in my contract with Sevens and, um, you know, I'll try and prepare the team as best we can through towards, you know, the, the Com Games and World Cup. And then, you know, you're only two years out from the next Olympics. So I guess, you know, who knows if, if I've got another full three years energy in me because, you know, it'll take... Got to make sure I'm the right person, I guess, going forward to take the team forward. And you know, we've done a lot of work um, to get it set up really well. So, you know, if, if it's time for somebody to to maybe try and take us forward over the next year, then you know, we need to look at that too. Sounds like you might be back to London Irish to try and get them to adapt the sevens mindset. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? <laughs> get them to stop complaining. Jeez, that'd be tough. <laughs> It's actually ironic coming from a Scotsman, isn't it? Because it's in our uh, it's in our blood to be to be negative and uh, moan about stuff. So, oh, good stuff. Anyway, as always, we've gone to our Instagram for some questions, and mate, lots of well thought out questions came in for you. I guess it's um, part of your following. First one, you sort of mentioned it before around fifteens um, players coming to sevens, but what stopped Caleb Clark from travelling to the Olympics? Game time, really, mate. Um, the year before, you know, you talked about COVID. Did it have an impact? You know, it definitely had an impact on, on Caleb. Um, you know, he, he probably just hadn't quite 
found his rhythm again. That real urgency in the, in the, in the Simmons game takes a wee bit of time to get back when you lose it. And, you know, we talked a lot. We had, we had to pick the team on the Monday after the Townsville tournament, which was a month before we played. Mm. Now, would it have been the same team we picked if we could have waited three weeks? I'm not so sure it would have been. Um, I think it might have been a different team, mate, and, and Caleb would certainly been a part of those discussions. Um, but just the mix, you know, we had even little things like Anthony had a had an injury. So if we if if Anthony didn't come right or did come right, if he was in the team and he didn't come right, we could make a change. So Caleb would have come in if if he had been out of the team and come right, we couldn't have put him in. So there's there's some different selection criteria you got to go through to to name that team as early. Oh, yeah. So I think you know, that, that plus Caleb, you know, not being able to be with us the same as he had been the year before, you know, he'd come in in the, the November. Um, by the time we played in Vancouver, you know, which was like nearly six months, he was going really well when he transitioned back into 15. So, you know, I feel disappointed for Caleb that, you know, that was the case. Um, but, you know, ultimately we, we felt we picked the team that, you know, gave us the best chance of winning. Mm. Interesting. Okay, next question. This one is from uh, your great mate, Cristiano Eves. Eves knows best. Who is slash was the best and worst player to coach? Conrad Smith. <laughs> what best and worst? Yeah, he's best and worst because on his good day, he was amazing. But what man, when he when his competitive streak came out, I seen him walking off at a game of walk and touch one day in the half. <laughs> um, that was a classic, wasn't it? So, oh, man, there's... I've been so lucky to coach. The amount of players that I could say have been the best um, would be huge. Mm. Um, you know, the current players that I work with at the minute are have got some of the best attitudes I've seen to to training and wanting to be good. So, you know, I'd, I'd put those boys at the top and probably coaching uh, Jed Jed Forrest back in the day. That was a handful. Be a few of my worst players in there when I was a player coach, <laughs> um, trying to coach your trying to coach your best mates who. Knew all your ins and outs, and then you were now trying to be serious as a coach. was quite interesting. <laughs> oh, good stuff. This one's from Stub Nugget. Uh, how many times has he been called Craig, and what's wrong with the song Slice of Heaven? <laughs> yeah, we'll start with Slice of Heaven. Nothing's wrong with it, apart from Stubbs, he sings it. Um, I'll tell you a quick story on that. So, we, we as a city, we sing before the game. So, we sing uh, Samoan, Fijian. Yeah. Tongan and, and, and Maori songs. Yeah. We, the year of the Commonwealth Games, when we went to Vegas, we decided we should sing, um, <laughs> sing in English. So we we done an ensemble of Slice of Heaven with Stubbsy leading <laughs> leading it, and we sang <laughs> we sang it before we played we played uh, Uruguay and uh, nearly lost. <laughs> And played terrible, and then we sang it again and played Argentina and actually lost. <laughs> so we we threw it out, and um, we never ever sang it again apart from when we have a few beers. So so that's where that that comes from. Um, Stubbsy, when we were a little bit down after the final last week, there was a few tears, and a few of the boys were singing some of our songs, and it was um, yeah, it was getting pretty dark for for fifteen minutes. Stubbsy. Stubbsy brought us round by a full rendition of uh, Slice of Heaven, so you got the boys back up a bit for for a time. And then the Craig story is, for some reason, everywhere I go, all the time, um, interviews, you can read it even online um, after Olympics, people call me Craig Laidlaw. Um, I had a guy text me and call me the other day, um, and he was obviously going out of his way to call me by my name on a text. 
but he called me Craig four times. <laughs> um, I got introduced on the stage at a, a big function one time. It's Craig Ludlow. <laughs> Um, so it's kind of a running joke in the team now that um, I just get called Craig. And um, to be fair, I've been called way worse than Craig. <laughs> <laughs> oh no doubt. Oh, Craigie. Okay, good stuff. Okay, next one. <laughs> uh, when coaching at a high level, how important is the balance of work and fun in the sessions? Yeah, well, I can't understand anybody that wants to come to work and not have fun. Now, what fun looks like in a training session. Um, you know, can vary, obviously, but having an enjoyable environment where you come to work and, and want to enjoy yourself and, you know, have fun on and off the field is a no-brainer. So I think in any session, the ability to switch between, you know, focused work and and, and edge and growth is, is kind of how we use it. So, you know, having, you know, we're trying to win the Olympic Games. It's a pretty serious, um, serious thing we're trying to do, but if you take yourself too seriously the whole time, you know, then ego and and unenjoyment will, will quickly creep into your environment. So we genuinely try and have a lot of fun and connection as a group. Um, you know me, I, I enjoy I enjoy banter and, and having fun. Um, mm. I'm glad you're not in the team doing uh, doing your info now. I'm the head coach. Um, <laughs> some of you, some of your infos, uh, the hurricanes around head coaching and uh, your songs and. If I remember correctly, your Victor Vito injury and your honeymoon um, was was one of my fondest memories. <laughs> oh, I still don't know how that happened. He got he got to go on a mid-season holiday, and I wasn't allowed to go on a honeymoon before the pre-season. Unbelievable scenes, and you you must have been a part of that discussion with the management crew at the time. I had nothing to do with it, Jimmy. I was, uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going honeymoon. He's uh, he's not going to get a game anyway. He might as well go. <laughs> <laughs> and Victor was actually injured, if you remember rightly, and he was injured. Was the <laughs> yeah? Oh, Boyd, he did apologise to me for that. He did regret it, but um, yeah, it was one of those ones. It was good for info, but uh, not great for the marriage. Yeah, uh, oh, you're still you're still together. Three kids later, so you're all right. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it was. That's the reason that made us stronger. Yeah, that's it. Thanks to Boydy. Resilience. Yeah, that's it. Next question. This one's from Mr. Alex Lewington, Saracen Star. Uh, can you please explain your Hampton Kingston analogy one more time? <laughs> yeah. G'day, Louis, if he's listening. Um, shit, we had some good battles with Louis, uh, getting players to see the, the positive side of things. Man, he could uh, drop his bottom lip, couldn't he? <laughs> But oh, I love the Sappuccino, that man. He was uh, he was competitive, but man, he didn't know how to show it when he was uh, when things weren't going good. But um, yeah, we used the 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 Kingston Bridge to try and get a phase attack. So one side would be Hampton, another side would be Kingston, and we used the Kingston Bridge um, to try and shape which player stayed on which side of the field, um, <laughs> if I remember correctly, in a one three three one fifteen shape. So. So yeah, I thought the boys really enjoyed that. It's, um, it certainly helped, I'll tell you that much. Um, so Louis obviously loved it. Louis can relate to it. Well, that's it's, uh, you talk about being sticky, doesn't it? So he's obviously remembered it, so it's uh, yeah. done its job. 100%. Okay, next one. If you could choose one player in world rugby to play sevens, who would it be? Oh, great question. Oh, man, so many. Um Loving some of the French backs. Mm. Um, I think everybody would love to see Damien McKenzie play sevens yeah. in New Zealand. 
you know, his speed and agility. You know, I think I think everybody'd love to see him. So yeah, probably probably Damon McKenzie, but man, there's you know, Chelsea Colby from oh, South Africa. Yeah. He's obviously played Simmons before. Um, you know, he played at the start of his career. He'd be a hell of a handful now that um, you know, now he's matured and the type of player he is. Mm. But yeah, I'd love to see some of the you know, some of those French backs. Obviously some of the Fijian boys that play for France have obviously played and Bakatava and, and these boys have played before, so um, I'd love to see a really good forward, you know. I'd love to see I'd love to see Ardy have a crack at it again or you know, players like that that kind of transition the real sort of physicality from, from 15s and put it back into 7s. Mm. So, yeah, that'd be, it'd be a long list, Jim. It'd be some pretty cool uh, players you could pick in there, isn't it? But if I have to pick one, Damien McKenzie. Damn. So if he's listening, you can maybe see if uh, Next Olympics. he wants to have a crack. <laughs> it's only three years. Okay, yeah. Who is the best sevens player in the world, in your opinion? Oh, the Fijian boys are, you know, Jerry Tuwai and Tui Mumba. Um... Daryl Alangi, the, the forward that plays, is, is an amazing rugby player. Um, he's probably got as big influence as anybody in the game. Um, so, yeah, probably Daryl Alangi, he's the biggest handful when you've got to play against them. I, think, I, think, you know, I genuinely think some of our boys would be up there. I think when you look at how Scuzz played um, in the Olympics, you know, if you're picking a World 7, he would have been in it. Um, Alongside Stubbsy, probably is is the halfback. So yeah, again, there's so many boys at the minute that you know, like say Longbottom playing for Australia, man, he's a handful to play against when he's fit and healthy, and um, you know, he's a real point of difference for their team. So mm. each team's probably got two or three that you're like, wow, you'd, you'd you know, you'd, you'd love to work with them if if you could pick a World Sevens team, it'd be be a hell of a crew. But Daryl Lung, he's he's up there, mate. He's he's a he's a great rugby player. Mm, I like it. Okay, this is an interesting one. When I read it, it made me really think about it. But who would win a sevens game between a team made up of All Blacks or the New Zealand sevens team? Three months prep. Yeah, that'd be a good game. Um, with three months prep, I'd back us to to have the team to to still win. Yeah. If you give them six months prep, it'd be be really interesting. You know that. Let's not be disrespectful to sevens players. You know, around the world, fifteens is still where players want to be, and. You know, I'm sure a lot of our players have grown up wanting to be, you know, full-time um, 15s players, and you know that's where the money is. Um, you know, I guess that's where people think is the pinnacle of the the game. So ultimately, the best players, you know, around the world and all the all the countries, not just New Zealand, are are playing 15s. You know, and I think that that question would be the same for France, South Africa, Australia. You know, all the major rugby playing countries apart from Fiji. The best yeah. players are, are playing 15s. Um, so, you know, if you give them six months to, to understand the game and, you know, you got to remember most of the New Zealand boys have played sevens of some sort at some stage. So, you know, if you had Jack Gucci, Ardi Savi as two year forwards, then they've mm. both played international sevens. You know, if you had Rico Ioani and Bodhi, they've both played international sevens. Uh, Richie Moanga would go pretty good, I would imagine. Um, he might be top of the list, actually, to play sevens. Yeah. Uh, George Bridge. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've got George Bridge, Damien McKenzie, Will Jordan would be a pretty good side, wouldn't it? It'd be cool to watch, actually, yeah. It would be a cool game to see, like, even if it wasn't three months prep, just even less than that, because obviously the game's so different now. Like, you need that fitness, you need... It is a different skill set, but like you say, given a six-month prep, um, 
you might be able to change that. But if the game happened like in a month, that would be a cool watch, I reckon. Uh, it would be a good game. I'm not so sure after our two weeks in quarantine and a couple of weeks off. But <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and as I say, it's, it would be, uh, be great to get some of those boys to, to stick their hands up, wouldn't it? Sure would. Okay, next one. What happened to him in a night out in Jersey? This is from another great Scottish man, Scott Steele. I'm not sure what he's talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We certainly had, um, it was actually ironic, we had uh, one of our biggest nights with London Irish, didn't we? And um, it was a game we lost. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was, the only thing I would say is Brian O'Leary saved me. Um, We had a medical, had a little concoction of... um, recovery pills to, to see me right on the on the Sunday. So, so yeah, it might have got away from us that night. Um, cheers, yeah, Steely. Thanks for that. <laughs> good times. Okay, two more questions. Who is the best up-and-coming player that will have a big future in the sevens game that we do not know yet? Yeah, well, I, you know, you probably know a little bit about him. Will Warbrick has come from... Nowhere really. Um, got involved in Red Bull two years ago to come to a pre-season, um, and within two years made the Olympic 13. So Will's Will's a real prospect. We, we're really excited around. He's a huge athlete. Um, he's only really starting to to believe in himself and have the confidence to express himself, you know, within the team. And um, you sh- you've seen glimpses over this year if you've watched the games against Australia as well as the Olympics that he. He's a, you know, he's a really exciting prospect, and you know, we've got a younger player, Kitiona Vai, who's in the back end of the Auckland NPC team. Um, he's just been picked up by them. Uh, Kitty's, you know, he's a 19-year-old loose forward. Uh, Milani Nana, his little brother. Um, again, if you've seen the games against Australia or the games in Townsville, he, he's got a lot of X factor. He's, he's, he's a little bit similar to Ardy. I see him a little bit similar to Ardy and Victor, almost a cross between the two. Yeah, you know, right. that doesn't, doesn't mean to say he's going to be as good as Victor or Ardy, but he's got the sort of same line-out ability as Victor, how quick he is at the front of a line-out or, um, you know, that sort of ball-playing skill, but he's probably as quick as, like, say, Ardy. Um, so he's somebody, those two young boys, two sort of young forwards that have both come through Red Bull um, that maybe nobody, you know, didn't play... Mm. Sort of schoolboy rugby, they want stars. Um, as I say, Kitty's already, you know, even with just you know two or three games with us, Auckland are, are now seeing them part of their future, which you know wasn't the case six months ago. So, mm. so yeah, we've got some good young boys there, mate. We're, um, you know, we probably see the next Olympic team, you know, almost already here, which is, I think, what it's going to take, you know, to to be able to win in three years' time as as boys with a lot of experience in big games. Um, you know, maybe with some of those 15s players that you're going to tap up for us to, to come in and join us. <laughs> oh, mate, exciting times ahead. Looking forward to following those guys' um, futures. But last question, one piece of advice you would give to a young sevens player? Yeah, man, you've got some good questions. Um, have um, have true humility to, to stay in the moment. I don't know if you've seen the basketballer that played, that won the... Um, won the NBA, I forget his name, I'm rubbish with uh, basketballers' names, I don't follow it enough, but I don't know if you heard him speak, mate, around what humility looks like, around staying in the moment, no. and if you're too focused on what's happened in the past, it becomes ego, 
and you can look to the future, which can be pride. But I think having true humility that allows you to to prepare every day, to not get ahead of yourself, to not think you've cracked it, um, to work your ass off every day um, would be the best piece of advice I could give a young player. Um, I think people get too far ahead of themselves too quickly. Um, I think we, we look too far ahead to what might come or what might not come or, or too far back on things we've done in the past. You know, a lot of young players get caught up in, you know, first 15 rugby and New Zealand schools and under 20s and so on. But none of that actually matters when you become a man. Um, none of it, you know, none of it really makes that much of a difference. So I think if you can have true humility, mate, to... To work hard and just whatever right in front of you, you know, to whether that's on the field or off the field, Jimmy, it's, you know, whether it's being a good brother or son um, at that time or whether it's been a really good young professional. I think that's, um, if anybody can watch that article, that, that young basketballer talk, I thought he put it way better than I ever could. So, so that'd be my advice. Um, I'd probably give it to myself when I was 19, 20. Um, <laughs> <laughs> transitioning into semi-professional rugby mate that is powerful powerful advice i i even got a little bit of goosebumps during that that is could be the best piece of advice we've had on yet and coming <laughs> from the great man clark laidlaw but mate really appreciate you coming on the podcast um you've been a massive influence on my career mate i've traveled pretty much around the world with you uh, with Taranaki uh, Hurricanes and London Irish but mate you've been a huge influence on my career really appreciate what you've done for me throughout my career and mate it's just awesome seeing you on the stage now that you are Olympic silver medalist and um, changing the culture of the New Zealand Sevens team and um, the stuff that you're doing as a coach is um, unreal stuff so mate look forward to following the rest of your journey, wherever that may be, whether it is sevens or fifteens. And, um, mate, appreciate you coming on the podcast. Too easy. Thanks, mate. What a lad, what a lad.